Hey folks, thanks for tuning in. Today is episode 28, <clears throat> titled Build Your House on Rock. This is the last set of instructions in Christ's Sermon on the Mount, so it's safe to say that Christ's Sermon was packed with information because it took 25 podcasts for us to really go through the Sermon on the Mount with a fine-tooth comb. And that's about a minimum of 10 minutes, sometimes a little bit longer. So it's 250 minutes of information to really study Christ's Sermon on the Mount thoroughly. So that's that's quite a little quite a bit of time. So let's go ahead and dive into today's scripture and see how he closes out his sermon. Matthew chapter 7, 24 through 27 says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, the words Christ is talking about are all the things he just taught in his sermon, right? So he closes out his sermon and said, if you're wise, if you'll listen to me, you're foolish if you don't. So for me personally, when I went through his teachings on the Sermon on the Mount with a fine-tooth comb, and I've done this multiple times, not just with the podcast, I literally couldn't find anything that I disagreed with. Now, I say that cautiously because it's like, who am I to agree with or disagree with God? But the fact of the matter is that just I couldn't logically disagree with any of it. And in my experience, when people disagree with certain things that are tough to hear, like love your enemies, it's, it's simply because they just don't understand. And when you explain to them that love is not an emotion and that love is to, biblical love is to unconditionally, unconditionally will the good of another, and it becomes easy to understand that even our enemies, we should will goodness for them in Christ. Because even if we are, think of it from a reciprocated standpoint, even if we were someone else's enemies, what would the world be like if everyone wished their enemies goodness in Christ? And that was the underlying thing. And, and it would just, if there was no resentment and always forgiveness, it would just turn, it would get rid of so many problems. And so that's how you, when you reciprocate something and compare an idea on both sides of the fence, and it makes things better in the social world, that's how you know it's right. Now, even if we have enemies and the enemies want to harm us, we have to encourage them towards Christ. Christian virtue and scripture to illuminate their path of salvation in Christ because we, we want every soul salvaged, right? We don't wish harm on other people. That's not how we're supposed to be as Christians. We're commanded not to. Now, regarding the rock, there's an important idea here. For those who don't understand or don't know this, the cornerstone of the household of faith is Christ. And the cornerstone of the nuclear family is the husband and father. So, a wise husband and wise father will encourage his family to adhere to the teachings of Christ and Scripture. And a wise wife will follow her husband's lead regarding these matters. But a foolish husband, a foolish father, a foolish wife, and a foolish mother will let the world raise their children through television, video games, internet, social media, and the most dangerous weapon that Satan has of all, it's the public school system. I was listening to a sermon by Vodi Bachman. He found a study that said 80, excuse me, 70 to 80 percent of children raised in, I think it was evangelical Protestant homes, if I remember correctly. By the time they got to their freshman year in college, they, did, they had no engagement in anything Christian whatsoever. They completely separated from the faith. 
So listening to that, I thought to myself, man, that is, Satan has an 80% success rate in subversion. That's what that's called. You can call it ideological subversion if you like, but it's still a form of subversion. And for me personally, I'm currently trying to get my kids in private school. Um, it takes a second to get your finances in order, obviously. And I know private school is super expensive, but in my opinion, if people are lucky enough to be in like a really conservative area where the public school, like my children's school, they pray before um, faculty meetings and stuff like that. All of them are Christian. It's a, primarily a farming community. So if you're fortunate enough to be in that situation, I think, this is my personal opinion, that there's a brief window in early elementary school that kind of gives you the opportunity to get your finances in order to try to prepare for your kids to get in private school. So for me personally, my deadline is like fourth or fifth grade for my oldest. By that time, I want to be able to transition my kids to private school before the end of elementary school, but definitely before middle school and high school, because really that's when the problems start kicking in, right? The major brain changes from hormones, the, 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 the free will and self-sovereignty starts to really develop and flourish. They start getting more independent. So I, I think really it's vital that by middle school, we get our children in private school, but depending on the school system, it may need to be earlier. And also homeschooling is an option. So let's move on to some commentaries about today's verses. The following information was taken from a scholarly commentary. The rock can be nothing else than the firm foundation of repentance and obedience, the ascent of the will and the affections as well as of the lips. The sand answers to the shifting, uncertain feelings which are with some men, the foolish ones, as Christ would say in this parable. So it's, to me, it seems fitting to consider the sandy foundation as those who are lukewarm regarding Christ in Scripture. So people who are like, oh, yeah, Jesus was a cool guy. Yeah, man, he loved everybody. It, that, that's a form of self-idolatry, by the way, when like you judge God as if he's like a cool guy. Oh, yeah, yeah he's a cool guy. Oh, yeah, I got, no, I got no beef against Jesus, but I mean, I don't need like the Bible. My life's fine. I don't need all, the, all of God's word. I don't need any of that stuff in my life. I mean, yeah, Jesus did his thing, man. That was cool, real awesome, but you know, I don't need to do the whole biblical thing. And that's a very dangerous endeavor because that's the lukewarm, that's the lukewarm people, or it could be the people who are hypocrites who profess with the mouth let's say, but they don't have integrated behavior. So, and, and the Bible says there's a warning against that. Revelation 3.16 says, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Well, that's terrifying because for anybody to read that verse and think they're going to be spit from the Lord's mouth into paradise, that's not where he's going to spit you. All right. So when we get vomited, depending on what translation you use, when we get vomited out of his mouth, it's probably not going to be a place, a well-watered ground, to say the least. The following information was taken from a, a different scholarly commentary, but scholarly, scholarly nonetheless. Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount by a beautiful comparison, illustrating the benefit of attending to his words. It was not sufficient to hear them. They must be obeyed. He compares the man who should hear and obey him to a man who built his house on rock. So God tells us through James, and this is where, again, we have to use Scripture to interpret Scripture, especially when we're reading commentaries. Because, you know, I read these scholarly commentaries, but I filter them through Scripture. So I'm not saying that there's like a, a gross misrepresentation in scholarly commentaries, but there's, again, only one human being is infallible, and that's Jesus Christ. So we should always question what we're reading. Okay, is this commentary true? Well, let's cross-compare it to other parts of Scripture. 
And then we, we have to verify even the commentaries. It's just what we have to do. And I, and I do that for you guys. God tells us in his written word through James, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That's James chapter 1, verse 22. So that, that is, we'll call that the, the pharisaical or the, the pitfall of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And that's to think that merely receiving the word by our ears, let's say, is enough to justify us, right? It's to hear only. So, you know, the people who think, oh yeah, Jesus died on the cross. Yeah, I believe that. Absolutely. Well, being a hearer only without any of the, the desire to live out a biblical life, we're only deceiving ourselves. So we have to be very careful. I mean, we, really, we should take the Bible seriously. It's the written word of God or God's written word. Our, not only our souls, but other people's souls depend on it. So we have to take this, this seriously. This spiritual battle that Paul tells us we're in in Ephesians. The following information was taken from another scholarly commentary. Christ here shows that it will not be enough to own him for our master only in word and tongue. It is necessary to our happiness that we believe in Christ, that we repent of sin, and that we live a holy life, and that we love each other as we love ourselves. This is his will, and it's even our sanctification. Let us, let us take heed of resting in outward privileges and doings, lest we deceive ourselves and perish eternally, as multitudes do, with a lie in their right hand. Let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from all sin. There are others whose religion rests in bare hearing, and it goes no further than that, and their heads are filled with empty notions. These two sorts of hearers are represented as the two builders, the wise one and the foolish one. So these empty notions that are in people's heads that they talked about in the scholarly commentary, it, it could very well be falsehoods taught about Christ and Christianity. So it doesn't mean that Christ, it's impossible for Christianity to be mis misrepresented. That's not the case at all. We see it. There's a false gospel right now. It's been coined as the prosperity gospel. But really what it is is just it's gross misrepresentation and gross incompetence, right? It's, it's narcissistic Christianity, which says being a Christian is about what I benefit from rather than how we serve our Lord. Two completely different ideas. Now, does the Lord love you? Well, yes. Right? He died. He demonstrated his love to anybody who would choose to have salvation. But that is just merely his gesture. The rest is up to the person to love Christ. Very important. Now, I've, I've, looked at, I've, I've tried to look at and categorize things just to understand. And there seems to be kind of three different people in the world regarding Scripture, let's say. Number one, the hearers that outright reject God's written word. So it's the people that say... I don't want to hear about Jesus. I don't want to hear about heaven or hell. I don't want to hear about the Bible. Nothing happens when we die. There is no afterlife. We just turn into dirt and fertilizer, and that's that. Leave me alone. Well, that's one type of person. The second one are hearers that want to receive love and grace and salvation from God, but they don't love him back. So we kind of touched that on that already with that prosperity. The no, I, I don't even like calling it prosperity gospel. I want to call it narcissistic Christianity, which is like it's about what God is doing for me rather than what I'm doing for God. Now, those, the second type of hearers, those are people that want to take from God, but they don't want to give to God, right? That's kind of what it boils down to. These people don't, either they don't want to repent or be obedient, or they don't think they need to, 
or maybe they've even been lied to, that it's simply just not their, I don't want to say it's not their fault because we're ultimately accountable for ourselves and what we learn, and we should verify everything everyone is telling us. So, yes, part of it is gross misrepresentation that they're sitting in church and hearing. And so they maybe don't think that repentance is a continual process, that we, we have to obey the commandments and we have to obey the New, the New Testament or strive with all of our power to do that, to, to carry our cross and struggle against sin. Or maybe this would be the worst case scenario. They know the truth, but they're just straight up rejecting it because they've got a rebellious nature. And that would, that, that would be a terrifying thing to just straight up reject. I know what the Bible says. I'm not going to do it because hashtag God's grace is sufficient. Because it covers a multitude of sins. It's like, ha, that, that's taking that out of context. And when we get to those verses, we'll talk about that, how love covers a multitude of sins. And where sin abounds, grace abounds further. We'll go through that in detail. But that's other things that are gr grossly misrepresented. And the third type of hearer are the hearers and doers of the word. Now, that doesn't mean that people attain perfection. Because... And this is, a very, this is a very difficult idea to get right. So if you let's say you follow the Ten Commandments and you follow the New Testament to a T. You still can't prevent temptation and wicked thoughts. Let's say sinful thoughts, right? So even if your behavior is perfected, your mind and heart can't truly be perfected. You really, what you're doing is you're carrying your cross to demonstrate spiritual discipline until you die. And then when you run the race, Christ says... Well done, good and faithful servant. And then he renews you to where you no longer have a capacity for sin. He removes your sinful nature. So, so if what we really should be doing is we should be pursuing the path of perfect behavior. And our carrying our cross would be carrying a sinful nature that never really goes away, right? It's sinning is easy. Having thoughts we shouldn't have is easy. Having desires that we shouldn't are easy. Even think of it just, just in a diet. Think about trying to follow a fitness regimen. Man, I just really want a donut. Of course you do. Of course you do. But you're trying to lose. You're trying to get your BMI under being a, a certain level, let's say. Or you're trying to get down to a certain weight because your doctor says you're going to run into um, blood sugar issues, diabetes, high blood pressure, all these things. So you, you realize how easy it is to sin just with a simple demonstration of, of nutritional and exercise discipline. It's the same concept, just spiritually. So it, it's not that the desires for the donut ever go away. It's that you've made a decision not to eat the donut. That's the bottom line. That's, that's perfect behavior versus um, your sinful nature going away completely. It's not going to happen until Christ renews us. So that's what it means to carry our cross. We have to carry our capacity for a sinful nature. And, and depending on the person you ask, some people call the evil triad arrogance, deceit, and resentment. Right? So arrogance is, is valuing what you know more than what you don't know. Deceit is twisting the fabric of reality with your speech rather than telling the truth. And resentment is not to have forgiveness. And that's biblically accurate. So if you want to talk about an evil triad, that's one right there. Now, I truly believe the reason we have so much misunderstandings in Scripture regarding all the ideas that we talk about, and especially today, like with Christ's teachings and obedience that we mentioned in the commentaries, is because you go into church... And you hear songs like, your grace is enough, your grace is enough, your grace is enough. It's played on a loop. But the pastors aren't following up with, hey, let me explain to you the purpose of grace, which is, according to Scripture, to bring about the obedience of faith. You know, or explaining to them, this is the definition of grace, which is unmerited divine assistance offered to human beings for their regeneration and sanctification. Now let me teach you 
what it means to participate in regeneration and sanctification, right? You have to follow up. If you're going to say something as powerful as your grace is enough, you have to caveat with what the rest of Scripture says about it. I don't know if you've ever heard pastors say that all you have to do is believe, and they don't follow it up with, with according to Scripture, even the demons believe and shudder. So what sets you apart regarding your frame of perception? So if you line up John 3.16 with, a, a, I think it's James 2.19, I forget the exact verse, but it's James chapter 2. Demons believe and shudder, and you have to believe to have eternal life. Well, I mean, so that, should, that itself should, we should offer discernment to them. Say, hey, I just want to put these two verses in front of you guys and explain to you the difference between the two. And then you can dive into the Bible's written in Greek. So let me explain to you what it means to believe by Greek definition rather than English definition. And the way you believe by Greek definition is trust. This is the full definition of pistuo isautos, by the way, which believes in him in John 3.16. In Greek, it's pistuo isautos. That's the original manuscript. And it says, trust and conviction in which a man is impelled by the inner and higher prerogative and the law of the soul. So the way you summarize those ideas is trust, conviction, action, and obedience. And it... It ties directly into faith. So maybe you've, you're probably figuring out, okay, what's the, you've probably come across this. So what's the difference between believing and faith? The Bible both says they're you know, eternal life. Well, the difference is two different scribes. And the reason I call Paul the scribe to the Ephesians and the preacher to the Ephesians and John the scribe of the Gospel of John is because the Bible is actually written by God. The Greek word is theonostos. It means God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. And so what we see is these writings and these epistles and these gospels, they're actually divinely inspired scribes. That's the easiest way to put it. Now, you may have been sitting in church and heard people say about faith, but they're not giving a full definition of what faith is. So from a dictionary standpoint, faith is three things. Allegiance to duty. Well, that's a commitment, right? It's a commitment to your duty as a Christian. Number two is the fidelity of one's promises. That's maintaining your commitment to Christ. And three, it's sincere intentions. It's to strive with all of your might to be obedient. Now, people may have heard pastors say, hey, you need to have faith, but they don't even define it from the biblical standpoint either, which is, it's really, there's four main pillars of faith, but fully articulated. It's assurance of things hoped for, the word that we hope for salvation through the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Christ, right? That's our hope. It's conviction of the unseen spiritual battle that Paul talks about in Ephesians. It's trusting scripture. Because that's God's written word. You can't pull Jesus out of the Bible. It doesn't work that way. It's God's written word is the path to Christ, and Christ is the path to the Father, period. But you've also got conviction from the Holy Spirit. And that's the contrition we feel when we disobey Christ. And then you've got the action that we take as Christians when we learn what's in Scripture. And then we have the obedience when we learn what's in Scripture. Like Paul talks about, again, the obedience of faith. So you might have considered asking yourself, well, what in the world is the difference between believing and faith? And I'm here to tell you there is no difference. It's just a different scribe, a different wording. So again, pistuo and pistis. Pistuo is believing. Pistis is faith. They mean the exact same thing. The only difference is that faith has passion. They call it holy fervor. So it's everything that pistuo is. It's everything that believing is but with some, a little extra zeal in there. And that's something that comes with time. If you ask me, this is my opinion, I think believing is kind of, by Greek definition, is the first step. And then the holy fervor and the passion for righteousness in Scripture through Christ is the zeal with that comes with time. But all these things have to be explained. 
And it's the teacher's responsibility to fully articulate it. And we have to understand when we're speaking what perceptual, when I'm speaking, how could someone perceive what I'm saying and what questions could they have? So when I, and I hope I'm doing a decent job of this, when I'm going through the podcast with you guys, my goal is to think about questions people could potentially have or even questions that they haven't thought about and then provide an answer for them. So folks, really what needs to happen is we have to be diligent students of the word. And we have to make disciples. We have to talk about this stuff. And please, for the sake of our own souls and the sake of others, let's take the written word of God seriously, not just as hearers, but hearers and doers, just as Christ calls us to do. I hope everyone has a great day. Fight the good fight. God bless.